Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now buddy Junebug. Say hi, Junebug. Hi. So how do you feel about doing a podcast about the movies your dad watched when he was your age? I, I'm happy about it. Are you? Yes. Why is that? Um, I honestly like things, olden things. Olden things? <laughs> you, you can't use the term retro. You have to say olden. <laughs> Man, that's rough. All right. Well, I'm excited to be doing this with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting your take on the movies that made me who I am today. So let's get started. Which movie did we watch for this episode? The Goonies. The Goonies. And what year was Goonies released? 1985. All right. Goonies stars Sean Astin as Mikey, Josh Brolin as Brand, Jeff Cohen as Chunk, Corey Feldman as Mouth, Carrie Green as Andy, Martha Plimpton as Steph, Ki Hoi Kwan as Data, John Matuzak as Sloth, and Robert Davi, Joe Pantoliano, and Anne Ramsey as Jake, Francis, and Mama Fratelli. So let's do a recap. Mikey and his friends have always wanted to go on an adventure. One night they are all in Mikey's attic and Mikey stumbles across an old map. Mikey has always wanted to know if One-Eyed Willie ever was a real person and now he might. They set off and later realize they have to go through the evil Mama Fratelli's restaurant to get to a secret passage in the caves. As they try to get into the caves, Mama Fratelli catches Chunk and he is left behind. He then meets Sloth, one of Mama Fratelli's sons, with a messed up face. He befriends Sloth. Meanwhile, Mama Fratelli and her sons are trying to get to the treasure too. Will the kids make it there before Mama Fratelli does? Will Chunk ever get out of her basement? All right. So, uh, yeah, we, we, the, the movie opens up in beautiful Astoria, Oregon. And, uh, we've got a, a group of people that live in a portion of town called the Goondocks. And so that's why they call themselves the Goonies. And this portion of town is going to be sold off to the local country club. And all the kids are kind of depressed because they don't have the money to prevent it from happening. So while they're uh, preparing their home to move out, what happens up in the attic of the house? They find a map. They find a map. Uh, and and how how does everybody receive it at first? Who who believes that the map will lead them to a treasure? 
Mikey does. Mikey does. That's right. How about his brother? Does he believe him? Nope. No, he doesn't, huh? So, uh, so our, our main characters, our, our main goonies, we've got Mikey and Brand. Uh, they are brothers. And then we've got Chunk and we've got Mouth and, uh, and Data. They are all there at this time, right? Yes. So, uh, Mikey convinces the other goonies that they're going to go off on their adventure. And, uh, so how do they, how do they escape from their brother? Um, they asked him, ask him how long he can pull this exercise rope thingy. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he does it and then they tackle him and tie the rope around him. So he's not able to move. And then they just run out the door, get the bike, and they even flatten his tires. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because uh, Mikey says, that's his favorite, most favorite thing in the world. And then Mal says, now it's his most flattest thing in the world. So, uh, so Brand is eventually untied. Uh, we, we assume by either his mother or uh, poor Rosalita, the, the woman that uh, they've hired to help clean up their house. And uh, so he goes out to chase after them, goes to his bike, finds that it's flat. So what does he do to, to get out of the neighborhood? He steals a little girl's bike. <laughs> it's got training wheels on it, huh? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. So uh, the kids, the uh, the other goonies that have gotten away, it, it shows them that they're they're getting really close to the entrance of, of some sort of network of caves where this treasure is. And uh, in the meantime, what's going on uh, with the people at the restaurant? What do we know about them? They are evil. Uh, they're a family, and they're really evil, except for Sloth. Uh, he's not that evil. Yeah, yeah. His family doesn't really like them. Him, he just they just lock him in the basement. That's right, and uh, and we know that they're outlaws. I mean, the beginning of the movie shows uh, them uh, helping to one, uh, helping one of the sons escape from prison, and uh, and they successfully get away. They're hanging out at this abandoned restaurant, and it turns out that the entrance to this cave system is in the basement of this restaurant, right? Yes. So I. Uh, the kids, they, they encounter the Fratellis, and uh, uh, we know that several of them are able to get into the network of caves. What about uh, what about Chunk? What happens to Chunk? Um, they tell him to stay behind and go get the police. That's right. Uh, is Chunk successful in finding the police? No. Uh, when he tries to go, there's someone... He sees a car going down the road. He goes up and it's like, please, we just saw the Fratellis. I re- someone really needs to get me to the police. Can you please help me? And it, it was the Fratellis that were in the car. So they took him and put him in the back of the car where there's a dead body. That's right. Yep. So, uh, Along with the Goonies, uh, we along the way we pick up uh, Andy and Steph. Uh, they are two girls that were being driven in the car uh, by. Uh, uh Oh my gosh. Troy. Troy. Thank you. By Troy. And, uh, so Troy does a really mean, uh, prank on, on Brand. What does he do? He grabs onto his hand, grabs his hand onto the car and then rides it in the training wheels to go, woo! <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and poor Brand, he, he crashes this stolen, uh, little girl's bike. 
but he's able to find the other Goonies and uh, Steph and Andy, they are able to get away from Troy. Uh, they make him stop his car because he's not a very nice person. They find Bran. So now we've got uh, this whole group in this network of caves, except for poor Chunk that has been kidnapped by the Fratellis. And uh, so the Fratellis, uh, they, they do something to try to uh, interrogate Chunk. What is it that they do? They try to make him conf- like confess to what he and his friends are doing. That's right. Uh, how do they scare him? Uh, they say that they're going to put his hand into the blender. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, what does Chunk confess to? He confesses to everything. Everything? He cries, he does all sorts of things, like, I brought vomit to the movie theater! That's right, yep, he uh, he played a really mean prank at the movie theater, uh, dumped a bunch of fake vomit on the audience, and everybody else started throwing up and everything. So, uh, yeah, Chunk, he's a he's an interesting kid. He lies a lot, he likes to tell a lot of big outlandish stories, and a lot of times people don't believe him. Like when he calls the police, do the police believe him? Nope. No. And there's a fun little Easter egg there when uh, when Chunk calls the police, and the police officer says, oh, this is just like that time you told me about the little monsters or the little creatures that turn into monsters when you spill water on them. Do you know that that's an Easter egg? Oh, really? Yeah, that is from another movie that is uh, called Gremlins. And that's another one that we'll probably watch for this podcast. Uh, one thing that we uh, we didn't really go over is that this movie was written by Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg was involved in a lot of movies, and he has been involved in a lot of movies, and, and this is one of them. And Gremlins is another one that he, that he uh, was involved in as well. So it's kind of a fun little Easter egg there. Uh, so... Uh, the Fortellis, they end up tying Chunk up, sticking him in a in a room with uh, a mysterious character. Who is that character? Sloth. Sloth. Tell me about Sloth. Sloth um, is a man who has um, a problem. Well, he is basic. He has a disabled face uh, because. Uh, Mama Fratelli dropped him so many times when he was a child. That's right. And poor Sloth, they keep him chained up. He's watching TV and they're feeding him essentially garbage. And he's, uh, he's not very happy and he's not treated very well. So, uh, Chunk, uh, tries to befriend Sloth, and Sloth is, pray, is played brilliantly by uh, John Matuzak, who was a professional football player, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here later. But uh, So what does Chunk do to try to make friends with Sloth? He passes him uh, a chocolate bar. He kind of does, huh? Uh, is he successful in throwing it to him? No, he throws it to him, but it bounces off Sloth's face and lands on the floor where Sloth can't reach. Okay, so what does Sloth do to be able to get to the candy bar? He rips the chains off of the wall to get the candy bar. He's a strong guy, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. So he ends up, uh, liking Chunk, right? Because Chunk gave him some chocolate. In fact, they share the candy bar together, don't they? Yeah. When he does that, in fact, uh... Chunk says, 
whoa, mister, you're even hungrier than I am. That's right. They constantly make fun of Chunk because he eats a lot, huh? Yes. So now we've got three kind of separate groups that are uh, that are in this movie. We've got the Goonies. And now we've got the Fratellis, and the Fratellis have figured out that and and found the entrance to the cave system, so they're down in the caves. And uh, and now we've got Chunk and Sloth, and they're going after them as well. So, uh, what kinds of things happen in the cave as they're as they're trying to find One-Eyed Willie's treasure? They find a a guy uh, who went in there to find One-Eyed One-Eyed Willie. Do you remember his name? Uh, no. It was Chester Copperpot. Chester Copperpot, right. Um, and when and then they continue, and then Mikey finds a rope on the ground. He makes a big mistake by tugging it. A bunch of rocks start falling from the ceiling. It's a booby trap. That's right. There's a lot of booby traps in this movie, huh? Yes. And I mean, the first one we see isn't even involved with the pirates. It's, uh, it's in, uh, Brand and Mikey's yard, right? They create this really cool booby trap that opens the rear gate. So we see a lot of things like that in this movie where, uh, somebody has set up all these really elaborate booby traps to do things. And this is one of them. And it causes these big boulders to fall from the ceiling. Uh, and, and so the, the goonies are driven deeper into the cave, aren't they? Yes. All right. So what are the kinds of things happen in the cave um they find these um they find this uh skull like they find the key from chester copper pot and then they find uh three rocks well they get into a well there's so man- much uh money in there and then they find three rocks in there and the key fixed fits into those rocks perfectly. Yeah, that's right. So at one point they find the bottom of a of a very famous wishing well in town, right? Yes. And so there's all sorts of money there, but it's not pirate gold. It's our it's modern money, right? Yes. So I uh, they're not able to do anything there. They they haven't found the treasure there. So they keep going. And you're right. They find that key that helps them to continue further on in the in the uh, in the cave network. So, uh, in the meantime, the, the Fratellis are kind of starting to catch up to them, aren't they? Yes. And there gets to be a really intense part where, uh, there's a, a puzzle that they need to solve. And what is this big puzzle that they need to solve? It's a piano. Yes. And is it a regular piano? No. What kind of piano is it? It's, uh, a piano made out of bones. It's made out of bones. And so Andy, who had taken some piano lessons when she was four years old, is tasked with playing this piano. And uh, how successful is she at it? Not very successful. Yeah, she has a hard time with it, huh? So what happens every time she hits a correct chord on the piano? Uh, the gate opens a little bit That's and right. like this uh, path drops down a yep. little bit. And uh, what happens when she hits a wrong chord? Some of the ground falls down. That's right. And if they and if if they fall down, I mean, it's not just some of the ground falls. It goes down into a deep, deep pit, right? So yes. if you fall down there, you're going to die. Yep. So the kids are able to get past this and they're able to move on. And uh, what happens after they after they pass this super cool pirate piano? The Fratellis catch up with them. They do. Yep. Yep. But are the kids able to escape? Yes. All right. So the Goonies have escaped. Uh, how do they escape? They go through this tunnel into a really cool water slide. Yeah. I, I remember even when I was a little kid watching this movie, how much fun I thought it would be to go down those water slides. That would be awesome. Yeah. 
So uh, they go through the water slides, they splash into a big cavern, and what is in the cavern? A boat. A pirate boat. A pirate ship. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and who does the ship belong to? One-Eyed Willie. And what's on the ship? Gold. All sorts of treasure, isn't there? So uh, the kids are starting to get their, their pockets full and everything, and who shows up? The Fratellis. The Fratellis. And they are not friendly. They mean business. They're about to make the kids start walking the plank, right? And then who shows up? Sloth. Sloth and Chunk. And they save the day, right? Yes. Hey, you guys. That's right. And Chunk's all about that. And he he has a fun time with Sloth saving the other kids, right? Uh, So... Uh, the Fratellis make the kids do something before they jump off the ship. Do you remember what it is? They empty out all of the treasure. They That's want. right. Yep. And Mouth has filled his mouth full of treasure, and she makes him sit and spit out about 10 pounds of jewels and stuff. Uh, that was she's, always one of my favorite scenes is when she's pulling that string of pearls out of his mouth. She's like, how? Yeah. How can you fit all of that into your one tiny mouth? Yeah. So... Uh, so then the kids, they escape, they get away, uh, and uh, the cave kind of starts to collapse because of a really elaborate booby trap that is set up if you take the gold that belongs to One-Eyed Willie, right? Yes. So uh, they're able to escape. Do you remember how they're able to escape out of the cave? Dynamite. That's right. What did they think it was? A candle. Yeah. So they lit a stick of dynamite thinking that it was a candle. The dynamite blasts a hole out of the cave, so they're able to escape. And uh, what happens once they escape? They, um, they are taken to a police station. No. Huh? They're on the beach. Yes, they're on the beach. Some police see them and then they're taken to the police station. What? They don't go to a police station in the movie. (laughs) The movie ends on the beach. Oh, I thought it was at a police station. No, no. So somebody wasn't paying attention apparently. So but oh, that's okay. Come on, Dad. <laughs> so uh so yeah, they're uh, they're they're on the beach. Uh the Fratelli show up with Sloth because because Sloth kind of gets left behind in the cave, right? He chooses to be left behind so he can save his family. That's right. Yep. He but he Sloth has a good heart and he really loves Chunk now because Chunk was the first person to be really kind to him, right? So, uh, Rosalita, the, the, the poor lady that doesn't speak English that Brand and, and Mike's family has hired to help them clean the house, she's going through the pockets of the boys, and what does she find? A marble bag full with jewels. That's right, and these jewels are worth lots and lots of money. And so, uh, because of this, they don't have to sell the goondocks anymore. They, they are able to, to make their payment and be able to save their homes. Yes. So that's a recap of uh, of Goonies. So that leads us to our next feature, which is My Kid Ransacks the Movie Snacks. Junebug, what was our movie snack for Goonies? We had Whirly Pop Soda. That's right. Whirly Pop Soda from the Adams and Brooks Candy Company. So what did you think about soda that tastes like giant lollipops? I don't know, actually. Um, it kind of tasted like swallowing your spit when you're having a sucker. Yeah, yeah, that's, you and I both went, I don't know how I feel about this. It was very, very sweet, uh, but it it complemented the popcorn really well, though. So that was good. We had our, our sweet and savory, so that was nice. Uh, what flavor of, of soda did you have? I had 
had blue raspberry. You had blue raspberry, and I had the, uh, it was the blue fruit was, punch, I think? No, it was the rainbow fruit punch. Rainbow fruit punch, yeah. So uh, uh, so for anybody interested in checking it out, uh, yeah, so the the uh, Adams and Brooks Candy Company makes Whirly Pop Soda, so those giant all-day suckers that uh, that you see uh, at candy stores, uh, they've got soda that tastes like those. So uh, uh, give it a shot if you're interested. Uh, so, uh, let's take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we've got my, more of My Kid Picks Retro Flicks for you, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to My Kid Picks Retro Flicks. Uh, let's move on to our segment known as Offset Significant Events, where we discuss things that happened the year that Goonies was released. Junebug, do you want to start us off with your first significant event of 1985? My first significant event is the 1985 Mexico City earthquake. All right. Tell me more about this earthquake. How big was it? It was really big. On the Richter scale, it measured 8.1. That's pretty big because doesn't the Richter scale go up to 10? Yes. So that's really big. That's a huge earthquake. All right. Keep going. So um, in courtesy of history.com editors, um, we are going... I. We are going to read one of their articles that they made. Okay. At around 7.19 a.m. on September 19th, 1985, Mexico City, one of the world's lar- largest urban areas, was jolted by a magnitude 8.1 earthquake, one of the strongest to ever hit the area. The quake was centered more than 200 miles west of Mexico City, the nation's capital. However, much of the damage was in Mexico City. Which the con- which constructed on an ancient lake bed whose soft sediments amplify seismic waves. That's really interesting to think that the ground was really soft there. So I'm sure an earth an earthquake of that magnitude would really cause a lot of problems. Yes, um, we'll be reading more about that, those problems in our next paragraph. Okay. More than ten thousand people died as a, as a result of the quake. Some thirty thousand others were injured, and an estimated 250,000 people were left homeless. More than 400 buildings collapsed collapsed, and thousands more were damaged. The disaster exposed the fact that government corruption had allowed for lax enforcement of building codes. Making matters worse, on the evening of September 20th, a magnitude 7.5 aftershock shook the region. Holy cow. So an 8.1 earthquake and then an aftershock of 7.5? Yes. That's crazy. All right, keep going. Mexico's president was criticized for his government's weak response to the disaster. At first, the president rejected offers of international aid and played down the damage caused by the quake. In response, citizens organized their own rescue brigades. In the aftermath of of the 1985 earthquake, an early alert earthquake warning system was established in Mexico City and other safety measures were enacted. Wow, that's amazing. That's really crazy that the government there wasn't able to respond, so the people had to take everything into their own hands. Yes. Wow, what an amazing story. I, I think I was a little too young to remember that, but man, I can't imagine being in an earthquake like that. That's really scary. Well, thank you. Well, uh, so let's move on to our next piece of history. So I came across this one. This probably impacted my life more than any of these stories that we've got today. So on October 18th of 1985, the Nintendo Entertainment System launched. Uh, this is courtesy of Chris Kohler from Wired.com. 
On October 18, 1985, the American video game market was in shambles. Sales of game machines by Atari, Mattel, and Coleco had risen to dizzying heights, then collapsed even more quickly. Retailers didn't want to listen to the little startup Nintendo of America talk about how its Japanese parent company had a huge hit with the Famicom, the 1983 Asian release of what became NES. In America, video games were dead, dead, dead. Personal computers were the future, and anything that just played games but couldn't do your taxes was hopelessly backwards. But the Nintendo president, whose grandfather had started Nintendo as a playing card company almost a century earlier, believed strongly in the quality of the NES. He sold his American executives to launch it, uh, I'm sorry, he told his American executives to launch it in the most difficult market, New York City. He thought that if they could make it there, they could make it anywhere. They couldn't make it there. Retailers wouldn't take the NES, so the head of Nintendo of America took a huge gamble that he didn't share with the president. He told stores that Nintendo would provide them with product and set up all the displays, and they only had to pay for the ones that sold and could return everything else. For the stores, it was a no-risk proposition, and a few agreed to sell NES. Nintendo knew it had to get away from the term video game, so it took its marketing emphasis off the traditional games played with a controller, even though these comprised the vast majority of Nintendo Entertainment System games, and focused on two accessories that it had released for Famicom in Japan. The Zapper Light Gun played the target shooting game Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt was one of my favorite games. I loved the little duck hunting dog uh, that would laugh at you anytime you missed a duck. Uh, that was always one of my favorites. And we would stand right up by the TV with the zapper, so like you couldn't miss a duck. It was pretty amazing. Uh, the other one was ROB, the robot operating buddy, word and spun around, taking commands from the television, helping you play complex games like Gyromite. The stench of Atari's collapse wasn't the only thing working against Nintendo. In 1985, Japan was not seen as the purveyors of cultural cool. They were the invaders, swallowing up good old homemade American technology with their cheap knockoffs. Nintendo launched the system with 17 games. What it didn't have was its trump card, Super Mario Brothers. Although it had just been released in Japan, it was not yet ready for America. The games were in some cases assembled so hastily that many of them were simply the Japanese circuit board slapped into an American case. Put a copy of Stack Up into an, N an NES and the first screen just displays the Japanese title Robot Block. At this point in the story, you're expecting to hear that the Nintendo Entertainment System was a huge surprise hit, flew off the shelves, and sent retailers into a frenzy begging for more. But that's not quite what happened. In fact, Nintendo only sold about 50,000 consoles that holiday season, half of what it had manufactured. But it was enough to convince Nintendo to soldier on and to convince retailers that they had a viable product. In early 1986, Nintendo expanded into Los Angeles, then Chicago, then San Francisco. At the end of the year, Nintendo Entertainment System went national, with Mario leading the charge. Video games were back. 
I remember going to an old store uh, called Shopco. They're not around anymore with uh, with my dad, your grandfather, and uh, with my two older sisters. And uh, my oldest sister wanted to buy a Nintendo. And the Nintendo uh, system, it was around $100. I can't remember the exact amount. But I remember my dad was furious that my sister wanted to spend $100 on a video game system. He was just, I can't believe you're spending this kind of money on video games. He was so mad. And it's crazy to me to think of the number of hours that I played on that old Nintendo. Some of my favorite games, I, I, I loved playing Contra and learning the Konami code. And that's something I'm going to teach you is the Konami code. Uh, in Contra, when you started the game, you only had three lives. But if you put in the Konami code, it gave you 30. And so uh, I, I, I learned all the ins and outs of Nintendo. They had the power pad. You know that uh, that game that you have that you plug into the TV where you run on a track? So Nintendo had one of those. It was the power pad, and you could run on a pad, and they had a track and field game that you got to play. It was a lot of fun. I loved my Nintendo. I spent hours and hours and hours playing it, and, and the Nintendo probably really influenced video games as we know it today. And you see, we have the Xbox, we have PlayStation, we have... PC games that are really, really popular, and it's amazing to me what the Nintendo Entertainment System did for video games, and it's exciting that it came out in 1985. Okay, so what's the next story you have there, Junebug? Um, in 1985, uh, Calvin and Hobbes was was uh, was being printed in newspapers for the first time. That's awesome. You have some Calvin and Hobbes books, don't you? Yes, I have three, I believe. That's awesome. Tell me more about Calvin and Hobbes. Um, in, thank you for, uh, out Angela Oswald at insider.com for this, uh, article that I will be reading Okay. about, uh, the Calvin and Hobbes named after theologian, John Calvin and philosopher Thomas Hobbes as an inside joke for poli sci majors. As its creator said, Calvin and Hobbes was first published November 18th, 1985. Creator Bill Watterson had graduated from Kenyon College with a degree in political science in 1980 and promptly started working as a political cartoonist for the Cincinnati Post. The paper fired him after three months, but he continued drawing, even as he struggled to create a comic comic strip that worked. He picked, pitched a comic to United Feature Syndicate, Syndicate publisher of Peanuts, in which a little boy and his toy tiger were supporting characters. So do you know uh, you know what Peanuts is, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, With so that's Charlie, Charlie Brown. Brown. Yep, yep, okay, keep going. The company recommended that he focus on those characters and thought it ultimately rejected his strip. Universal Press Syndicate accepted it. Within a year, Calvin and Hobbes was being published in roughly 250 newspapers. By the time Watterson ended his strip in 1995, it was appearing in more than 2,400 newspapers. It had become a beloved classic. That's amazing to think that he went from 250 newspapers to, you said, 2,400? Yes. That's amazing. And, and you know, it, it, it's interesting to me. I didn't realize that Calvin and Hobbes had only ran for about 10 years. That's really interesting. 
What else can you tell me about Calvin and Hobbes? Um, on December 31st, 1995, after a little more than 10 years of the comic, the final Calvin and Hobbes strip ran. It was being published by more than 2,400 newspapers at the time. More than 23 million Calvin and Hobbes books are in print, and 14 book collections have sold a million copies within their first year of publication. And you said you have three of those? Yes. That's cool. In 2012, due to the rarity of Calvin and Hobbes items, an original 1986 comic comic strip by Watterson was sold for the record-breaking price of $203,150. Holy cow, for a comic strip? Yes. That is amazing. Not only was it a comic strip, it was an original. That's really cool. Wow. I, I wonder uh, what he's up to these days. It, it sounds like he kind of disappeared after he was done with uh, with Calvin and Hobbes, huh? Um, this article is also named Here's the History of the Strip and its mysterious creator, Bill Watterson. Interesting. We'll and have to so, look into him some more, huh? So um, according to this title, I believe that Bill Watterson is, a, is mysterious. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Well, we've got one more story from uh, 1985, a significant event in history. And this is one for anybody that ever has uh, studied marketing or lived through the 80s. So uh, this article is courtesy of Christopher Klein uh, from uh, history.com. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The time-tested adage appears to be the lesson from Coca-Cola's disastrous introduction of new Coke. Except in 1985, Coca-Cola indeed thought its signature brand was broken. Although Coca-Cola remained the world's best-selling soft drink, rival Pepsi-Cola continued to gain market share in the 1970s and early 80s. Thanks in part to its aggressive Pepsi Challenge campaign in which consumers taking blind taste tests were surprised to learn they preferred the flavor of Pepsi. To the shock of Coca-Cola, internal taste tests yielded the same results. Company executives grew convinced that its soda's taste, not its rival's uh, advertisements targeting the Pepsi generation, was the reason for its declining market share. Since its introduction in 1886, Coca-Cola's secret recipe had been tweaked several times, such as when changing sweeteners from cane sugar to beet sugar to corn syrup. But its taste had remained constant. While the company was developing the unique formula for Diet Coke, which was introduced in 1982, it found in top-secret taste tests that a sweeter version of the concoction beat not only Pepsi, but the classic version of Coke. Executives decided to make a risky change. On April 23, 1985, Coca-Cola Company Chairman and CEO Roberto Guizetta stepped before the press gathered at New York City's Lincoln Center to introduce the new formula, which he declared to be smoother, rounder, yet bolder, a more harmonious flavor. The press, however, said what Guizetta couldn't admit. New Coke tasted sweeter and more like Pepsi. Had it been an opera, the Lincoln Center performance would have been a tragedy to devoted fans of Coke's original formula. Rather than divide its market share between two sugar sodas, Coca-Cola discontinued its 99-year classic recipe and locked Formula 7X away in an Atlanta bank vault with the intention that it never again see the light of day. Some may choose to call this the biggest, sing- the boldest single marketing move in the history of the packaged goods business, Goizetta said. We simply call it the surest move ever made. 
Coca-Cola president Donald Keough echoed the certainty. I've never been as confident about a decision as I am about the one we are announcing today. While Goizetta and Kyo uh, uh, toasted each other with cans of new Coke, the news was already beginning to fall flat. On the New York Stock Exchange, shares of Coca-Cola dropped, while those of its rival rose. Pepsi gave its employees the day off and declared victory in full-page newspaper advertisements that boasted, after 87 years of going at it eyeball to eyeball, the other guy just blinked. New Coke left a bitter taste in the mouths of the company's loyal customers. Within weeks of the announcement, the company was fielding 5,000 angry phone calls a day. By June, that number grew to 8,000 calls a day, a volume that forced the company to hire extra operators. I don't think I'd be more upset if you were to burn the flag in our front yard, one disgruntled drinker wrote to the company headquarters. At protests staged by grassroots groups such as Old Cola Drinkers of America, consumers poured the contents of new Coke bottles into sewer drains. One Seattle consumer even filed suit against the company to force it to provide the old drink. The outrage caught Coca-Cola executives by surprise. They had hardly made a rash de- uh, they had hardly made a rash decision unsupported by data. After all, they had performed 190,000 blind taste tests on U.S. and Canadian consumers. The problem, though, is that the company had underestimated loyal drinkers' emotional attachments to the brand. Never did its market research testers ask subjects, subjects how they would feel if the new formula replaced the old one. 79 days after their initial announcement, Coca-Cola executives once again held a press conference on July 11, 1985, this time to announce a mea culpa and the return of the original formula, which hardly had time to gather dust in its Atlanta bank vault under the label Coca-Cola Classic. Our boss is the consumer, Keel said. We want them to know we're really sorry. The news was so momentous that television networks broke into normal programming with special reports. Coca-Cola Classic quickly quickly outsold New Coke and within a few months had returned to its position as the top-selling sugar sugar cola ahead of Pepsi. The company rebranded the new formula Coke 2 in 1990 before it was eventually abandoned in 2002. In spite of the blowback, Coca-Cola emerged from the fiasco with its market position actually strengthened as consumers rediscovered their attachment to the iconic brand. The simple fact is that all the time and money and skill poured into consumer research on the new Coca-Cola could not measure or reveal the deep and abiding emotional attachment to original Coca-Cola felt by so many people, Keo admitted. The blunder was so colossal that some thought it must have been an intentional marketing gimmick. Some cynics say that we planned the whole thing, Keel said. The truth is we're not that dumb and we're not that smart. So uh, sometimes people put more value in uh, things that are sentimental than uh, things that actually taste good. I guess that's the lesson we learned from the introduction of New Coke. And another thing is that as you read it, I was thinking, hey, um... They didn't mean to make New Coke horrible. They just meant to get their customers back that were like, Pepsi is the best. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Okay, well, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, it's trivia time. Nice. Don't go anywhere. 
Thanks again for joining us. Our next segment is called Retroflix Fun Facts. We search the internet for fun movie facts so that you don't have to. I'll start us off this week. So production for Goonies began on October 22nd, 1984 and ended on March 21st, 1985. Goonies was released in theaters on June 7th, 1985. Its budget was an estimated 19 million and its worldwide gross was $64,499,270. Exterior shots were filmed in Astoria, Oregon, while most of the interior shots were filmed on sets constructed in Burbank, California. Yeah, so like the caves and everything, those were all sets that they yeah. built in California. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actor who played Sloth, John Matuzak, is wearing a t-shirt of one of the Oakland Raiders, a team that he once played on as a defensive lineman. According to Sean Astin, he was allowed to keep the treasure map used in the film. Several years later, his mother, Patty Duke, discovered it, thought it was a crinkled piece of paper, and threw it in the bin. Oh, no. That thing was probably worth about as much as One-Eyed Willie's treasure, and she threw it away. Yes. Oh, that's a bummer. I wonder if they have a lot of props left over from that movie, but man, that one would be just priceless. I can't believe they got thrown away. Uh, so the wall calendar, seen around 9 minutes 50 seconds, shows October of 1985. Around 6 minutes 43 seconds, mouth indicates that it's a Saturday. The newspaper front page seen around the 43-minute mark is dated October 24th, 1985, which was a Thursday. All this would mean that the action takes place on Saturday, October 26th, 1985, which incidentally happens to be exactly the same day on which the events of the original Back to the Future took place. That's pretty amazing, huh? At around 46 minutes, when the Fertility brothers argued, Anne Ramsey really slept Robert Davy. She was told to hit him as hard as she could. You know, we went back and rewatched this, and it was pretty funny because the other Fratelli brother is sitting there trying to listen to something on a Walkman, and when she uh, when she hits uh, hits the other Fratelli brother, she accidentally. Uh, grabs the 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 cord for the headphones that he's wearing so you see her unplug the walkman when she slaps the brother and and the one brother starts laughing and you can tell that it's not in character like he's about to break character as he's laughing at the fact that this woman just smacked the guy in um in part of it he's like yeah, yeah, you see him kind of trying to keep it together because he's laughing so hard. Yeah, yeah I, I encourage everybody to go back and rewatch it and you can totally see it's it's right on the verge of becoming a blooper. Uh, so this I found really, really interesting. The Lou Gehrig baseball card that Mikey finds on Chester Copperpot's body is worth $275,000 at auction in mint condition. Wow. Yeah, so if you have a, a Lou Gehrig baseball card, it would be worth almost as much as all that treasure, I guess. The reason the kids were called the Goonies is that they all randomly hung out at the local neighborhood on the porter part of Astoria, Astoria called the Goondocks. Yeah, so uh, they, they live at the Goondocks, so they just call them the Goonies. Uh, the movie that Sloth is watching on TV and later reenacts with Chunk is Captain Blood, which was released in 1935. Korea... Feldman had to learn Spanish for the part where he translated for 
Rosalita and the map. That's really interesting. And I ended up uh, finding out that actually the actress that plays Rosalita spoke English perfectly. And she was the one that actually uh, was, she kind of tutored uh, Corey Feldman to get him to, to speak uh, Spanish as well as really? he did. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. Uh, so Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, and Ki Hoi Kwan all later experienced career comebacks after appearing in a hit film that won Best Picture. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, No Country for Old Men, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. So they were all in uh, pictures that won, movies that won Best Picture. All of the pirate skeletons in the movie are real. Chester Copperpot skeleton is plastic. Yeah, so uh, One-Eyed Willie, that's a real skeleton. That's wild. Uh, so according to International Maritime Salvage Law... The rights to a salvage vessel and its contents go to the person or persons who first successfully bring something off the vessel in question. Since Mikey brought the jewels off the ship, the Inferno, and everything belongs to him. Awesome. Yeah, so if they go out and find that ship, then uh, then uh, everything on it belongs to Mikey. Wow. According to international... I just read that one. Oh, R2-D2, the popular droid from Star Wars, made an appearance in the film. The droid was hidden on the deck of the pirate ship and that sets sail on the end. Yeah, so uh, I end up going back and looking at some pictures, and sure enough, they they put it on there and kind of they kind of painted it and stuff so that it blended in with everything on the deck, but it's there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So our last uh, bit of information, our bit of trivia, is uh, as Sloth, John Matuzak required five hours for his makeup to be completed. One of the eyes, which was out of place on the face, was mechanically operated off-screen by remote control. He had to time his blinking to match the blinks of the robotic eye. A crew member would count down and tell him to blink. The cast was told not to get him wet in scenes outside of the pirate ship, but the kids inadvertently did so, holding up filming for an entire day. Can you imagine needing to sit for five hours while somebody put a bunch of makeup and prosthetics on you? That would be amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. So uh, that's all of the uh, Retroflix fun facts we have for this show. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, I love doing that research, uh, you know, and who knew that there were so many Retroflix fun facts about Goonies? I, I know. I, it was really cool. So it's time for our next feature, Where Are They Now?, where we discuss some of the actors from the movies we watch and talk about the different roles they've played through the years. Our first actor is Josh Brolin, who played Brand. Junebug, I'm going to show you a photo of a role Josh Brolin, I'm sorry, Josh Brolin played recently, and I want to get your reaction, because this is a big one. Who's that? Oh my gosh, it's Thanos! Yeah, so the older brother on Goonies is uh, is the biggest villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thanos. Wow. How cool is that, huh? Uh, could could you tell that it was him when you were watching the movie at all? Um, did he look, I don't know. Did he look or feel familiar or anything? No, not really. No? Yeah, it's pretty amazing that that's who he grew up to be, huh? All right, so next is Sean Astin, who played Mikey. Here's a well-known character he played. Oh, my gosh. Do you recognize him? Um, he is, uh... He is in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he played Samwise Gamgee yeah. in Lord of the Rings. 
he actually, now that I look at um, Frodo's friend, he actually does kind of look like Mikey. Yeah, yeah, that's Mikey from, from the Goonies. That's pretty cool, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so next is Corey Feldman, who played Mouth. I bet you didn't know that he was the voice of this famous character. Oh, my goodness. Who's that? The Hound from the Fox and the Hound. Yeah, he played Copper, the Hound Dog from in Fox and the Hound. So that was about four years before Goonies came out. That movie came out in 1981. So uh, he was really little when he did the voice work for uh, for Copper. Wow. Uh, so uh, here's a photo of Jeff Cohen, who played Chunk today. He is now an entertainment lawyer. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, he looks so much different. Yeah, he's a... In uh, fact, he is... He is now um, almost completely bald, and he is skinny now. <laughs> That's right. Yep he couldn't he couldn't be made fun of for his appetite in any movies anymore, huh? Yeah. Uh, and so our last actor here is Ki Hoi Kwan, uh, who played Data. He won an Oscar. That's right. He recently won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. We sat down and watched that video yesterday of his Oscar acceptance speech, and it was one of the most beautiful acceptance speeches I've ever seen. Uh, in it, he describes how, uh, you know, years and years ago, his family came to the United States as immigrants. They were on a boat, and now here he is all these years later on a stage uh, accepting the Oscar for, for Best Supporting Actor. And it's really amazing because, uh, him as, as an actor, when he was a little boy, he was, he was cast in a lot of, um, kind of stereotypical roles for, for, uh, for him. And, and, and I don't know if, uh, anybody ever really recognized that it was kind of offensive to him. And so it's, it's really cool to see that he has gone on to, to do more serious things. And he's a very good actor. And, 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 uh, it, it's great that he won that Oscar. His speech actually almost made me cry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always choke up because the, uh, the actress that announced that he had won, even she gets choked up as soon as she reads his name, uh, up on the stage. So, uh, I, I challenge everybody to go out and, and, and watch the YouTube video again of, uh, of Kihui Kwan, uh, accepting his Oscar for, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, we're really happy for him and, and hope him the best and hope that he continues to do well in his career. Uh, it's nice to know that many of these actors have moved on to do some sex, uh, some successful careers in the film industry. Uh, so let's take one more break. When we come back, Junebug is going to give her rating of The Goonies. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Flick Pickers. All right, Junebug, let's get your final take on The Goonies. What uh, did you like about the movie? I loved a lot. Um... I loved everything. It was really, really cool, especially the water slide part. Our rate for today is 10 out of 10 gold coins. 10 out of 10 gold coins. Are you serious? Yes, I am serious. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited to hear that you gave uh, Goonies 10 out of 10 gold coins. Uh, so I had a blast watching it with you. I'm looking forward to our next one. I, I, I have such a good time watching movies with you and watching you react to the movies that I watched when I was a little boy. Uh, it's, it's really fun to see you kind of laugh at the old technology and, uh, you even mentioned how things look kind of silly because, uh, special effects back then weren't as good as they are now, were yeah. they? 
But uh, I just I just want you to know how excited I am to be doing this with you. I love spending time with you and watching old movies with you, and and uh, I'm excited for everybody that that joins us in the in our adventure through Retro Flicks. Well, all good things come to an end, and my kid picks Retro Flicks is no exception. I'd like to thank Age of Radio for making this podcast possible. For more information, visit ageofradio.com. I'd also like to thank Nick Borrego for composing our music and the Adams and Brooks Candy Company for providing the movie snacks. If you have any questions about the My Kid Picks Retroflix podcast, feel free to reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can email us at mkprfpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Nate Vandenberg, reminding you that if you hit the wrong note, we'll all be flat. Send us off, Junebug. Hey, Dad, was this movie made in the 1900s?